Well, good evening, everybody. How you doing? Yeah? What? Thank you. Uh, hey, you guys had a... Yeah, you did. It's fair. Hey, you guys had a good first day of camp, though, right? Now, I want to try something. I want to try something. But it's going to require you guys to have a little bit of self-control, a little bit of participation here, okay? But one day in, 24 hours into camp, let's go over here in this quarter of the uh, chapel. What, what's been like the best part so far? Over here. Yeah, first hand up. The blobs are like free time stuff. You're liking that. I love it. I love it. All right, we covered free time stuff. How about, how about over here? Right here. The skits, you're liking that. What, are they, what do you like about the skits? Um, just how they interpreted the story. Yeah, how they're telling the story. That means a lot. The, the team here at, at Meadow Ranch has put a lot of work into that, so that's super encouraging. Right here, blue shirt. The coffee shop. What do you like about it? What's that? Yeah, just getting to do that whole thing. I love it. Yeah, right there. Yep. The worship, what do you like about it? You like the music. Okay, that's it for now. But here, here's what I want you guys to do, okay? I may or may not ask that at the beginning of every chapel, but it, it kind of ties into what we're going to be talking about tonight. I want you guys to be mindful of what you love about camp. I want you to be mindful as the week goes on about how you feel, about what you're experiencing, about what you're learning, about the thoughts that you're having. Because I bet you you're going to notice a difference the longer that this camp goes on. And it's not by accident. It's fully by design. Because camp is this incredible place where you come to with all your homies, with all your friends, with some adult leaders who love you and want to just pour into your life and show you what it means to follow Jesus. You get to, you get to go to coffee shops. You get to have awesome free time activities. You get to see this incredible stage and the skits. We get to open God's word together. Like all of those elements are practices that you can take home with you. Worship, community, scripture reading, finding entertainment that's edifying and uplifting as opposed to just mindless slime videos or whatever on YouTube, right? Like, like you have the ability to pay close attention this week to what's standing out to you, to what's contributing to the joy that you feel while you're here at camp so that you can take those things home. It's important, and maybe this is something you do as a cabin after chapel tonight. It's important just to take a time out and go, what's going good and why? Let's be intentional about focusing on those things, right? Because last night, what, what was the main point of last night? Who remembers? There was a couple, but what was like the big picture? Yeah. Okay. Uh, in chapel, what was the main point? Uh, obviously, he was sleeping. That's okay. But what was the main point in, uh, in chapel last night? Yeah, yeah, that we're exiles. That if it feels like you as a, as a, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is who's following after God and living in accordance to the way that he has for you, if it feels like you stand out in today's culture, it's because you likely do. The ways of God are contrary to the ways of this world, right? Like the world tells you, and, and, and even us as adults, but the world tells you primarily, live your truth. 
You live your truth. What you feel is what you are, and so you live your truth. And so what our culture has done is it's put you at the center of your own universe, and it's no wonder why life doesn't go good when that happens, because God's word says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody gets to the Father except through him. Jesus says that if you'd like to come after me, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross daily to follow me. That is complete opposite of what the world tells you as a young person. Live your truth is the opposite of deny yourself. And to deny ourselves, to put Jesus first in everything is a commandment of God. Jesus is pressed, and we'll talk about this in a couple days, but Jesus is pressed in, in the Gospels in, in Matthew 22, and some religious leaders, some pastors, some lawyers come up to them and say, what's the most important thing we could do? They're trying to trick Jesus. And Jesus gives them an answer. It's pretty incredible. He says, listen, all the law and all of the prophets hang on these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's as if Jesus is saying, if you can just do those two things, you are honoring God with your life but it comes with putting God first. We live in exile, and the culture of our exile wants you to feel as though you're the center of your universe when God says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let me be that one that wears the weight on his shoulders for you. You follow me. It's complete contradiction to what the world says. And so tonight, praise God for that. Tonight, I want to go a little deeper into the uh, character of Daniel. So open up to Daniel 1, right back in that same chapter. And we're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up in verse 5. We're going to read through the end of the chapter, okay? Now, I just ask one thing, all right? We're not going to be in here for too much longer. I know it's been a long day, but, but this truly is a hugely important part of the day for you at camp. So I beg of you, pay attention. If you've got questions, write them down. Ask your counselors after. Come find me. Let's talk about it. But if you just give me your focus for the next 20 to 25 minutes, I think collectively we can learn something beautiful tonight, okay? Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. We read a few of these verses last night, but we're going to read on from there. It says this, the king assigned them a daily amount of food. Remember what's happened. Judah's been besieged, pummeled, leveled, taken over. The people and all their artifacts are now uh, property of Babylon, a nation that is in direct opposition to the ways of God, the God of the Bible, okay? The king hand-selects some of the young Jewish boys to be in the king's guard, and among those who he selects are Daniel and his three friends, okay? Now, part of that selecting process means that they're now told how to live their lives. You don't have freedom in Babylon. In Babylon, as a slave, you do as you're told. And so that's where we pick this up in verse 5. It says, the king, that would be the king of Babylon, assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, he called them Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Meshach, uh, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. It says this in verse 8. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission to not defile himself this way. 
Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who assigned me your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and wine and they were to, uh, that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. These four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding and all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. That's the king. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for another great day at camp. We come to you right now, Lord, asking that you would speak to us directly from your word. That your spirit would be giving us revelation tonight, helping us to understand your character, your nature. Ultimately, Lord, would you teach us this evening who you are and what it means to fear you. Not to be scared of you, but to be in awe of you. To have reverence for you, to orient our entire lives around you because we can trust you. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I told you guys last night a couple things about me, and uh, the big thing I want to start with tonight that I know is just going to go over like a fart in church with some of you Central and Northern California people that are here is that I'm a diehard Lakers fan. Yeah, diehard. And yeah, have your fun. You guys, can, you guys can complain all you want, but at the end of the day, it's us and the Celtics that have the most titles in NBA history, okay? And so uh, I don't care if you're all about the Sacramento Kings or the Clippers or, God forbid, the Warriors, ew, but okay. here's the deal. In, uh, it was a couple years ago, a friend of mine, his, uh, his work had box seats to Lakers games. It's a good friend to have, the friend who gets free Lakers tickets. And he, his name's Bobby. He goes, he goes, hey, Corey, I got, I got something for you. I go, what's that? He goes, I got four tickets to the Lakers. Do you want to go? I go, absolutely. So we invite two friends. We drive down to Staples Center, also known as Crypto Arena, and we show up for a, uh, a November basketball game, still early in the season, where the Lakers were playing the Warriors, Okay. Flashback, we won, all right? But here's the, the point of the story isn't that. The point of the story is that as the game went on, I tend to get a little rowdy at sporting events. I tend to get real excited because I love the Lakers. And so every time Draymond Green, which even if you're a Warriors fan, you can admit he's a little much at times, okay? Uh, every time Draymond would get the ball, I would yell, and mind you, these seats were very nice. They were like 
nine rows behind the players. Like I could see the sweat on LeBron's head. It was awesome. Okay, so Draymond gets the ball, and every time he got the ball, I would do this. Draymond Green, you stink! For like three quarters, I'm doing this. And it got to the point where the other Lakers fans around me were like doing it with me, you know, and we're like high-fiving, just like fast friends at a sporting event, all, all kind of commiserating around our hatred for Draymond Green, okay? Respect the guy, but really fun to hate on. Well, in the third quarter... The, uh, the pages that work at the Staples Center, those are the guys with the red jackets and the earpiece, they start walking up the stairs, and there's this little thought in my head, like, oh, I wonder if they're coming for me. You know, like when you're in the car and you see a police officer, and you're like, I wonder if that's for me. Nine times out of ten, it's not for you. Maybe 90 times out of 100, it's not for you. But this one time, they were coming for me. And so these guys walk up to me, and they go, sir, we need you to come with us. And I'm looking at my friends, like, is this like a prank? Like, what's going on here? And I go, what's up? And they're like, we need you to come with me. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I follow them up into this little like side room in the arena. And they go, listen, we appreciate your love for the Lakers. We too obviously work here. We are big Lakers fans. But there's one issue about this gimmick that you're doing. And I was like, what's that? And they go, the ESPN cameras that are televising the game can pick up your Draymond, you stink chant and so this nationally televised basketball game that's being played in people's homes across the country, maybe even across the world, has your voice yelling at one of the players louder than the refs, louder than the announcers, louder than anyone else. It's coming through on TV. And I get kind of that smirk like, all right. And I go, I say this like a very smart aleck. I go, and the problem is? And they go, the problem is this. Draymond his agent is sitting two rows in front of you. And it's a bad look for him. So we need you to stop. And I go, done, I'll stop. They go, great, it's not a problem. We just wanted to remove you to like make his agent think we took it serious. But like, if you could just stop that, we're good. I go, it's all good. So I go back to my seat, fourth quarter, Lakers win. But there's like people around me that were like high-fiving. And every time Draymond would like miss a shot, we kind of look at each other like, I'm not allowed to say it, but I want to say it. And they would like nod back, okay? And I swear to you, in the fourth quarter, LeBron James is turning around and like pointing at our section. And I'm like high-fiving my friends, like we got the attention of the king. Like this is incredible, like he's on us. Side note, him and, him and Draymond have the same agent, okay? They have the same manager uh, managing them. So the game's over and LeBron turns and he blows a kiss in our direction. And I go, that's kind of weird. But I'll catch it, I'll take it. And I look to my left, and the woman that I had been high-fiving with the whole time stands up, walks down to LeBron, gives him a hug, turns around for a photo. It's his wife, Savannah. I have been making a fool out of myself in front of LeBron's wife for the entire night. Now, I'm very used to making a fool out of myself, but the irony in it was I had no idea who I was sitting next to the whole time. I had no clue who it was that was literally aisle her for the entire night. The reason I share this story is because in light of this passage tonight, my fear is that many of you who came to camp this week treat God exactly the same way. Like you know the lingo, you know the words to the worship songs, you may even know some Bible verses. But what we've done today and what we are in danger of doing is trading knowing God for knowing about God. 
right? Like, like knowing God like a subject in school, knowing God the way that you cheer for your favorite sports team, knowing God like you know about animals versus knowing God like a friend and a person who's in your life. It's a true danger because the knowledge of God doesn't save us, but the knowing of God gives us an eternal hope and an eternal treasure. The reason I share that story with you is because at this point in Daniel's story, we see that Daniel doesn't just know a lot about God and resolve to represent him in Babylon. No, we see that Daniel knows God personally, that Daniel has faith in God, that Daniel has been to the secret, the quiet place. Daniel spends time learning and knowing the voice of God. God is very much a person in the life of Daniel, and we see that come through in his resolve to remain faithful when he's not supposed to. Because if you look back at this text, what do we see happening? Look back at the text with me. In verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official per, for permission to not defile himself this way. Daniel's given a decree. Daniel's not in charge of his own life anymore. Daniel's told, you have to eat this food and drink this drink. And Daniel goes, but that goes against everything I believe in. Daniel, as a Jewish man, had a very strict set of things that he was and was not allowed to eat or to drink. Daniel had a very strict set of things that as a Jewish man, he was supposed to do to honor God. And this new menu that he's being served in Babylon went against all of that. And so Daniel takes a stand in his exile and resolves to be faithful to God because he knows who God is. He knows who God is. He doesn't do it in a protest. He doesn't even do it disrespectfully. What we see is that Daniel asks permission, and then he gets granted that permission, and God blesses that permission to the point where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are all in better shape after 10 days than the rest of the men who had got selected for this certain role. The Bible tells us in Daniel, it tells us this, because God blessed them. God blessed Daniel's faithfulness. God gave Daniel the ability, the skill set, the discipline, the tools that he needed to thrive in exile because Daniel resolved to remain faithful to God during this time. And so the big question that I want to unpack for us tonight is that if Daniel's faithfulness came from his knowing God, do you know God? Like, do you know God? Do you know a lot about him or do you know him? Now, there's a difference between these two things. Like I mentioned last night, I've been married for 15 years. I could tell you a lot about my wife. She's five foot two. She loves to run. She loves the worst television shows, like the kind of shows that I go, are we really watching this right now? She loves my cooking, or at least she says she does, and that's really all I need to hear. She's an incredible mom. She's an incredible mom. She's really wise. My wife will go for these runs and she'll come back and she'll have clarity on things that we've talked about or decisions we're trying to make. And I go, that's amazing. I wish I had that. And she's like, you should run. And I'm like, that's too far. That was too far, way too far. I know those things about my wife, not because I read them in a book, but because I've, I've done life with her. I've walked side by side with her for 15 years. I've known her. I've seen her at her best. I've seen her at her worst. She's seen me at my best. She's seen me at my worst. We know each other. 
If I only knew my wife based off what her favorite color, the things she likes is, or some certain things that she says, I wouldn't truly know her. But the time spent with her is what's transformed my knowing her in a deeper and more intimate way. I think sometimes because of the amount of time that we spend in church and and because of the, the world that we live in, it's really easy for us to reduce God to something we can just know because it makes us feel like we have the right answer. But friend, there's so much more to God. The knowledge of God should always lead us to knowing him more. It's not just facts that I want to know about God. It's because when I learn that he's loving, I can trust him more because I know that he's loving. When I learn that God is compassionate, that's not just something I remember. God is compassionate. I can tell you God is compassionate. It's something that when I need compassion, I know I can still go to God because I've learned about his compassion through spending time with him, through reading about his character and his word. Daniel resolves to be faithful to God because he knows who God is. So I'll ask the question again, do you know who God is? There's one passage in the Old Testament that I think gives us one of the most beautiful pictures of who God is, and it's found in the book of Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah with me. Turn to Isaiah. Isaiah, it's in your Old Testament, it's a big old book. And we're going to look at chapter 6. Uh, pages don't work quite like that. You've got to look at the beginning of your Bible because we all have different Bibles. Like, so my Bible says that Isaiah 6 is page 612, but it's probably different in yours. Isaiah, I-S-A-I-A-H. Now, I don't want a rabbit trail here, so I'm going to read this for you. If you find it, great. If not, just pause and listen and... We'll find it later. Your counselor will help you, okay? Isaiah 6, chapter 1. This is fantastic right here. It says this, okay? Now, I'm going to read this, and there's going to be a lot more big words and a lot more names. This is a completely separate story than Daniel. This is a totally different time period, totally different characters, okay? But let's jump into it. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 starts with the moment for Isaiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament. A prophet was someone who speaks on behalf of God to God's people. So Isaiah's job was to hear from God and to declare that to the people of Israel. Now, Isaiah has this specific moment with the Lord, and he remembers when this happens because it happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Like, he remembers, oh, when this happened, it's the year that King Uzziah died. There's big moments in our lives. It doesn't always have to revolve around death. It could be, oh, the year I graduated from fifth grade and now I'm a middle schooler, or the year that my older brother or sister got married, whatever it is, right? Like, there's there's years that commemorate moments in our lives. Isaiah remembers this specific instance because it happens in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah goes on now to tell us what happens during this specific vision. It says that that year, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. Question, who sits on thrones? Kings sit on thrones. Royalty sits on thrones. Now, now what have we just learned about this throne? 
What have we learned about this throne? It's what? It's high and exalted. The, the picture that should pop into your head when we read these words is this is a big throne. This is a high and exalted throne. This isn't like a normal throne. This isn't like the throne of Burger King, right? Like this isn't like a normal size throne. This is a high and exalted throne. And then he says, and the train of his robe, whose robe? God's robe. The train of God's robe. Do you know what a train is? Right, think of a wedding dress. Just picture for your second a wedding dress. And the bride's walking down the aisle. Bum, 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 bum. And she has that long, frilly thing on her dress that follows behind her. That's known as a train. And in ancient times, when you were dealing with royalty, and if you watched any of the, the stuff happening in England this year, you kind of saw a version of this play out again. The train is something that's meant to separate the royalty from the people. And so if I have a train on my robe and I'm walking, you can't walk right behind me. I'll know it because you're actually stepping on my robe. Does that make sense? So if this is a high and exalted throne and that this robe is so big that the train of it fills the temple, what is this telling about the God that Isaiah is seeing? He's big. He's exalted. He's what else? Look in verse 2. It says, above him were seraphim each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. In this instance, known as the throne room, Isaiah sees these angelic creatures that are flying around the throne room of God. And as they fly around the throne room of God, they've covered their feet and they've covered their faces while they're flying because they have enough wings to do this. The question that should naturally arise in your head, among, I'm sure, many others, because this is a pretty gnarly and epic instance from Scripture, is why are they covering their eyes and their faces? Why are they doing this? Here's why. Because verse 3, it says that these angelic creatures were calling to one another, and they were singing a song. And the song that they were singing as they flew around the throne room of God was this, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. You can just picture this, this temple filled with smoke. You can picture this big king on a big throne with a big robe and a big train with these amazing, intense creatures flying around like a chorus singing this song. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. An epic moment for Isaiah, I'm sure. It says in verse six, I'm sorry, verse four rather, that at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord God Almighty. Isaiah is transported to this temple where God himself resides. And as he's there, he learns something that Daniel also knows in his dealings with God. And Isaiah's big takeaway from this moment of putting eyes on God is that God is holy, holy, holy. 
like Isaiah's takeaway after having this vision, after seeing God, is that this God that he sees is big and on a big throne with a big robe and a big train. And his emphasis isn't even necessarily on these really weird creatures that we just read about that are flying around. The takeaway for Isaiah is that he wasn't worthy to be in the presence of this God. Why? Because God is holy, holy, holy. To be holy is to be set apart. When we sing songs about God where we say things like, God, you're holy, what we're saying is, God, there's no one like you. Like if I say God is holy, what I mean is there is no one like God. Now why is that important for us to know? Because if there's no one like God, then that means there's no one else deserving of the worship that God deserves. That means there's no one as good, as loving, as kind, as caring as God. Like the fact that God is holy means that there is no one else and that there is nothing else like him in all of existence. There's this preacher who died a couple years ago. His name was R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says that the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. But it does say that he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. In other words, it's the holiness of God that makes him God. God's holiness, God's set-apart nature, God's perfect nature is, is what makes him uh, possess the ability to be loving and caring and kind and gentle and compassionate on all those things that we love and believe God to be. Isaiah realizes this as he's having this vision of who God is, and it's this same character that gives Daniel, back in Daniel chapter 1, the faith to be faithful to God in an instance where he absolutely shouldn't be. Like, you have to understand this about God. There is no one else like him. He alone is deserving and worthy of the entirety of our lives, not just because he made you, not just because he loves you, but because there is no one else like him. I don't know what it would be like to be Isaiah on that day. I remember at my sixth birthday party, I was a huge fan of Ninja Turtles, big fan of Ninja Turtles, like huge and my dad was like, you know what? We're going to have the Ninja Turtles at Corey's sixth birthday party. But it was a surprise to me. I got excited. I was like, what's my birthday? He said, it's a surprise. It's going to be a surprise. And I was like, cool. Let's do this thing. So my mom like, took me out, brought me back to the house later that day. And she brought me back. And I came in. And my dad had my eyes covered. And he goes, hey, here comes the surprise. Are you ready? One, two, three. And six-year-old me looks at these really weird men in costumes that were supposed to look like turtles, and I broke down, and I cried, and I ran to my room because I was scared. I was terrified. Like, I think that's why they say, don't meet your heroes, or you're going to be disappointed. Like, in that moment, I was like, this is not okay. I was terrified. I can't help but wonder if that's not a little bit of like the picture that we're seeing here tonight. Like, in the presence of greatness, you're freaked out. In the presence of greatness, you're terrified. Obviously, grown men in Ninja Turtle costumes is not what I've been trying to describe to you for the last 25 minutes. But the point is, we all have those moments where maybe you meet someone of influence. Maybe you do meet one of your heroes. Maybe there's an athlete doing an event in one of your towns, and you go to the sports camp or whatever, and you meet him. 
Like that feeling when you meet someone who has influence. Has anyone ever experienced that before? You ever met someone famous, right? There's kind of that moment where you're like, ooh, you'll grow out of it. As you get older, it goes away. But like when you're your age, it's like really exciting. You know what I mean? Yeah. When we read about, when we talk about, when we think about, when we pray to, when we study, when we hear preaching, when we sing songs, when we have small group discussions about God, we're talking about something that exists on a completely different plane than anyone or anything else you've ever known or experienced to be true. Why? Because he's God. He created it all. He made it all. And amidst God creating and making it and being this holy, holy, holy God, who who the Bible says the whole earth is filled with his glory, the ability for us to breathe, the ability for us to have friends, the ability for us to experience joy is an expression of God's love to you, something by which you've done nothing to deserve. The Bible teaches that this God knows you, that this God loves you. And friend, the, the, the whole point of what I've been trying to say to you tonight is we have to live lives different in light of who God is. Like we have to live lives that are marked by obedience in light of who this God is. Luke 16.10 tells us that those who are faithful in little things will be trusted with much. So those little areas of your life where you don't give God the reverence, the awe, or the fear that he deserves are actually holding you back from becoming someone who is faithful for him in the big things. Little things, small acts of obedience, when done over long periods of time, give you faith in God. Like when you spend months taking that time in the morning to spend time in the word, it transforms you. When you commit to signing up for and attending and being present for that small group at church, it may seem like a small act of obedience, but what God does with that is he shows you the importance of having community. Remember Daniel, as he's in this exile? Daniel has three friends with him. I can't help but think that that's a really important part of Daniel's success in Babylon is the fact that he has Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with him. When you sign up to serve on Easter because your church does a sunrise service and your youth pastor is told you're in charge of food and you're like, cool, I'll do that, I guess. Let's do it. I've got to be there at 3.30 with kid volunteers. We'll be there. And when you sign up because your youth pastor desperately needs help, that's one of those small acts of obedience that leads to greater faith the longer you do those things. Just like you don't get good at sports overnight or you don't get good at music by taking a few lessons, our pursuit of our understanding and our knowing God is something that is exercised over a lifetime. Daniel shows us this. Daniel's small words in Daniel chapter 1 verse 8, that Daniel resolved not to defile himself, give us such a deeper understanding of who God was in the life of Daniel. God wasn't something to be compromised. God wasn't something to be squandered or wasted. God wasn't just a subject that Daniel had learned about in school as he grew up. God was a person. God was holy, holy, holy. And as a result of that, God deserved Daniel's faithfulness even when he found himself in exile. There's a little tiny verse in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verse 7, and it says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. To fear God doesn't necessarily mean to be scared of him, 
But to fear God means to have reverence for him, means to respect him, means to show God that we understand even just a little bit about who he is through the way that we choose to live our lives today. And so for those of you who are followers of Jesus, those little acts of obedience matter deeply. They're what transform you and help you to live a life that is marked by following the ways of Jesus until you grow old. Daniel shows us this. My encouragement to you guys tonight is to begin to understand better who God is. He wants to know you. He desires deeply to know you, for you to know him. And he promises to be with you always and forever to the very end of the age. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for these students. Lord, uh, big topic tonight. Big topic. So we talk about you and your character and Sometimes at church and at camp, it becomes so easy to just talk about God in a flippant way, but Lord, your word says that you hold the expanse of the universe in the palm of your hand, that you know when we rise, you know when we sit, you can discern our thoughts from afar. Lord, I pray that these students would move from just knowing a lot about you to knowing you, and would it start with them understanding that you are holy, 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 and that the whole earth is filled with your glory, and God, that as a result of that, You deserve our respect. You deserve our awe of you. You deserve the big and little decisions that we make on this side of eternity to live for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.